Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. In the end, what have you accomplished? You've racialized all these children and you've given a bunch of them a set of grievances for what purpose? You know, is, is that really making the world a better place? I would argue it isn't. On this episode, I speak to Bion Bartning. Bion is an entrepreneur and investor. He co-founded EOS Products, a company best known today for its egg-shaped lip balm. He's also the founder of FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Bion talks to me about how FAIR is trying to respond to racism and other ideologies by offering something positive rather than negative. FAIR is developing different types of diversity trainings that move away from stereotypes and categorizing people according to groups and trying to present a more productive and constructive approach. Bion also thinks that these new trainings are much more effective than their predecessors and alternative approaches. Bion, thank you very much for joining the Keeping It Civil podcast. It's great to have you here in Arizona and at ASU. Welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. Why don't you just describe to me the work that you're doing with your organization, FAIR, how you started it, what your role is in the organization, and just a few of your goals. So FAIR is a nonpartisan organization that has a mission to advance civil rights and liberties for all Americans and promote a common culture based on fairness, understanding, and humanity. I started the organization last year. My role is I'm the founder and I'm the president and you know really the person leading the charge on this organization. I'm also a volunteer. And the inspiration, I would say if I had to put my finger on one specific thing, it would be seeing what happened in my children's school. My kids were at a at a private school in New York City that we loved. It was a school that was focused on character-based education. What does that mean, character-based education? It means focusing on encouraging positive character strengths, optimism, gratitude, zest, grit. And that really spoke to us. I'm Jewish. My wife is Jewish. The values that Riverdale Country School was focused on really resonated with our values. We loved the school, and I think that What we saw is that after George Floyd was murdered, there was a a shift in the school. And, you know, obviously this is in the middle of COVID, but we started getting memos from the school about a new focus on Riverdale becoming an anti-racist institution and some specific changes that would affect the lower school. Our kids at the time, my son was eight, my daughter was 11. Post-George Floyd, the school brought in a new approach that was really, as I dug into it, in every sense of the word, a racist approach to anti-racism, which sounds odd, I know, but it started with the premise of racializing everyone. And so separating children, separating adults based on something as superficial as the color of their skin. At that point, I just had to start asking questions. And I think that The more that I asked questions, the more curious I became and the more concerned I became about the fact that this worldview that had encroached and and really harmed, I think, the, the curriculum and the purpose of this wonderful school had really 
permeated so many other institutions. I don't think that the way you respond to something like this is by becoming angry and hateful. I, I think the way that you respond to an ideology like this is by offering something positive in response. You know, so our, our approach at FAIR is to focus on addressing the real issues of racism, the real issue of intolerance through what we call the pro-human approach. And the pro-human approach is at its core really treating other people, viewing other people and viewing yourself as a unique individual first and foremost, right? So overcoming the natural human tendency to flatten or stereotype people, but also recognizing that we are all part of one human race, that, that we have a shared humanity that unites us. So we're focused on being constructive, developing curriculum that actually will help to end racism. Would you say that the school kind of embodied some of the values that you want to promote through FAIR now in your early interactions with it? 100%. At the time we sent our daughter to Riverdale Country School, it was very much a pro-human institution. I think there was really no emphasis on racializing children it was a school that had just a, a really wonderful, warm community. When an institution that you're part of that shares your values and has made promises to you shifts in a different direction, I think that's what makes it that much more difficult and I think confusing for people. How is it then that the values of the school could change so dramatically? Because school, I mean, I presume the school that existed for some years or some decades, and it had a ethos that was obviously attracting parents like yourself, right? They had a, their marketing plan was working. They had, they had demand. Was there a change in the school leadership around the same period that they changed the curriculum and started to change their approach to teaching and to including race across the curriculum? Was there a change in the composition maybe of the board or was there a change in, was it the people, did the people change or did the same people simply change their teaching style and their views? I think it was a little bit of both. There was a new head of the lower school who made changes over a number of years. I mean, I think that it became very apparent after George Floyd, where the school was very public about the changes that were happening. But what we realized is some of these changes had been happening earlier. So, so yes, I think the, the new head of the lower school, you know, as I learned later, he actually had set up his own consulting firm that was trying to help other schools teach racialization to kindergarten students, for example, right? And, and so, you know, he had, you know, whether it's for ideological reasons or because he saw profit-making opportunity, you know, his focus very much seemed to be on racializing young children. Um, Has there been an effect on the school's success? Uh, d did a lot of parents take their children out of the school? Did it seem to affect the demand for places at the school, this change in the curriculum that, that you observed? I mean, it does seem to me that every institution is serving a certain constituency or market and to have this change could potentially harm that? Or has the school just continued to be just as successful as before? My sense is it's just as successful as before. I think there are a number of families that did leave. In our case, within a month of me starting to ask questions, maybe it was even less than a month, we were encouraged to consider leaving the school. Huh. Um, and we hadn't even gotten to the point of complaining. We were just asking questions <laughs> at that Wait, point. So, so 
parents asking questions of the curriculum was so unwelcome at the school that they wanted you to leave. They wanted your children to leave. Yeah. I mean, I think the exact words from the head of school were maybe now is a time to think about other schools. It's never good to be philosophically misaligned. And that was hard for us. I think that was really a moment that we just started questioning everything. Is this common across schools? Or is there a certain type of school where this is particularly common, this change in the curriculum occurring maybe with some accelerated pace or accelerated intensity? I mean, could you find another school for your kids really easily? Or or is this a kind of a blanket movement across a lot of private schools and public schools in your area that you really couldn't find an alternative? Within New York State, I think it's fairly widespread, right? And, and so the common refrain that you'll hear from parents who are concerned about this but aren't prepared to move or take a more drastic step is, well, everyone's doing it. You know, what, what am I going to do? You know, this is just the new normal in these schools. I'm going to have to just take steps to educate my child outside of school and make sure that they understand what is accurate or, or true or, or good about what they're being taught and what is not. Part of this is really, it's, it's a top-down coming from the National Association of Independent Schools. So I think within NAIS, there has been a push to adopt this racialized worldview and to, and to view anyone who, who presents an alternative viewpoint to paint those people as extreme or as unwelcome, you know, to the point where I, I published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last March when we were launching FAIR, and the, the title was Dividing by Race Comes to Grade School. And it was about my children's experience at Riverdale and just expressing what, what I firmly believe, which is this is not a partisan issue. This has nothing to do with people being Democrats or Republicans. It's not a left-right issue. This is just really about philosophically, what do we want to be teaching our kids? Do we want to teach our kids to see themselves and other people as interchangeable members of identity groups? Or do we want to teach them that they are unique individuals, other people are unique individuals, racism is real, and the way you overcome that is by connecting with other people on a human-to-human level. So then you take this kind of quite interesting step founding this nonprofit or this organization but that wasn't really what you, you'd done before was it that was something totally new for you you'd been a business person before and you went to business school and what was it like to stand up a nonprofit compared to standing up a uh, a business was it more difficult more easier in some ways what was it like you know it was definitely different is what i would say so i i think there were there were things that were easier, I think, because in in the end, there are so many people who are passionate about these issues that, you know, ultimately, this organization is mostly volunteers. That process of getting the word out and having people come to us who wanted to be part of this, who wanted to advocate for these values, for this approach, this pro-human approach within their communities, within their institutions, I think that was fantastic and rewarding. And I think in business, in business, it's really about the bottom line. It's about, you know, something more tangible, I guess. That was fantastic. I think that the nonprofit world is also very challenging. You know, sometimes, I think especially as you're, you're getting to the place where you're hiring staff, when you're setting expectations, 
I think you have to figure out how do you make sure that people do focus on the effectiveness of what we're doing, on the bottom line issues that I think any organization, whether it's a for-profit or nonprofit, need to focus on. To me, there was a learning curve there to really understand, you know, how do you motivate people within a nonprofit organization? How do you hire? How do you fire? And how do you build an effective organization, right? Because it's one thing to have these ideas. It's one thing for everyone to want to achieve what we are trying to achieve, but it's another thing to actually accomplish things. To that end, I think, you know, my experience in the for-profit world, I think that experience was very helpful. It gave me a different perspective, an outsider's perspective. And at the same time, I also had an incredible sense of urgency because I, I think I, I just was seeing how pervasive these really bad ideas, how popular they were, and that there just did not seem to be anyone standing up for the values and the ideas that most people know are true. And so the people who were standing up were more more negative, more angry. And I think ultimately, ironically, helping these bad ideas seem like they were the, the better ideas. Because if, if you have a bunch of people who are angry and hateful and say that the answer is to ban a bunch of books, and that's your only alternative to this really dehumanizing approach to anti-racism, then the dehumanizing approach to anti-racism wins. You know, I think I understand the ideas that you invested in and the ideas that you oppose, but I'm a little more less clear on what the mechanisms for change are, right? So what are the mechanisms for social change that you focus on at FAIR? Because obviously trying to push back against an ideology is kind of an amorphous goal in some ways you know you're uh, shadow boxing against uh, there's no real person out there like a political campaign you have an opponent right what are the mechanisms for change that you focus on at fair and, and what are the concrete goals you know you mentioned concrete goals what are those concrete goals so the mechanisms i'd say first and foremost it's about ensuring that there are really good options out there whether it's curriculum or diversity training that there are options that are based on the values that FAIR is advocating for, right? Because right now, you know, many organizations really have to choose between saying, well, I'm not going to have a diversity, equity, and inclusion training program at all, or I'm going to have one that's based, you know, this racialized, reductionist, identity-based approach to DEI, right? So you're so, offering choice in some of these school curriculum trainings for DEI and these sorts of things. Exactly. So first, just getting these options on the table. And then the second is demonstrating that this approach is more effective and better and trying to, you know, be the most reasonable people in the conversation, you know, not being reactionary, not being angry, but instead being constructive, right? And so I, my theory of change is that if you can demonstrate with specific institutions that this is effective, that this other approach is more effective, then the vast majority of people, I think, are well-intentioned. I, I, I think that people are just looking to do something. And, and if they're given this straw man choice between really harmful approach to DEI or no DEI, then many of them are choosing the harmful approach to DEI. But if you can give them a pro-human approach to DEI, if you can give them an approach that's actually going to be effective, that's actually going to address real issues of 
division and racism, then the majority of people will end up choosing that option. So, And do you have a goal like a certain number of schools or a certain number of universities or corporations that you're hoping are going to take up your offerings and your trainings and things like that? Do you have like a sort of a plan for the future? I don't want to set too low of a goal, but, <laughs> you know, but really on the curriculum side, it's a handful of schools. Just as an example, in California, there is now an ethnic studies course mandate. And personally, I think ethnic studies is fantastic. I think that to, to really study and understand, you know, just the incredible diverse origins of the American people is an amazing opportunity. And I, and I think that that's wonderful. The actual ethnic studies courses that are being offered right now are a form of liberated ethnic studies, which again, sounds great. Who wouldn't want to be liberated? But it's really based on this same reductionist worldview that permeated the curriculum that that my children's school had adopted. And so it's based on this victim oppressor narrative. It's very simplistic approach to aggregating individuals into these large identity groups and ascribing all sorts of meaning to the label that is placed on you. It's not really teaching ethnic studies. It's not teaching just the richness and diversity of the incredible cultural heritage of this country. It's actually teaching, you know, this really dehumanizing worldview and victim oppressor narrative that, you know, that I think ends up hobbling the children who are being taught this way because they, you know, if they're being told they're a victim, they're being given a form of learned helplessness, right? So instead of being optimistic about the future, instead of seeing things through the lens of gratitude, they see things through the lens of grievance and learned helplessness. And that's not helpful to anyone. And the children who are being told that they're oppressors, it's also harmful to them, you know? And in the end, what have you accomplished? You've racialized all these children and you've given a bunch of them a set of grievances for what purpose? You know, is, is that really making the world a better place? I would argue it isn't, you know? So at this point, that liberated form of ethnic studies is really the only option that California schools have to choose from. So FAIR has been developing, you know, what we're calling an inclusive ethnic studies program. And, and so, you know, really getting one California school to adopt the inclusive ethnic studies is the near-term goal because that once one school adopts it, it's now official California curriculum, and then we can grow from there. On the corporate diversity training side, we've actually have had an amazing opportunity and experience working for the last year with a corporate client, uh, Sodexo North America. And I think they're head of diversity, equity, and inclusion recognized that the approach they were taking to diversity training was not effective. It was not working and was in fact alienating some of the employees. And Sodexo is an organization that has a, a very diverse workforce, you know, in every sense of the word, you know, political views, ideologies. What, what um, do they do? What does Sodexo Sodexo, they do um, food service, facilities management for a lot of schools, sports stadiums, et cetera, educational institutions. You know, they have hundreds of thousands of employees. Wow. Okay. You know, a lot of them would be people working in the, in the kitchen at a university. For all I know, ASU may be a Sodexo right. client. You know, there's a lot of 
issues where there could be people from different cultural backgrounds and, you know, there can be conflict between people there, you know, racism could spring up, you know, people could be insensitive. The uh, race essentialist approach to diversity, equity, inclusion training would encourage everyone to, you know, separate into their various groups. And I think Sodexo was seeing that that wasn't working, that wasn't effective. And so what we have developed and been rolling out in a very successful way with Sodexo is the pro-human approach to diversity, equity, inclusion. And, you know, that really started with a training program focused on inclusive dialogue. So, you know, really helping leaders understand how to engage with employees and how to support them with the issues that they brought to the table. And then building on that, we've also been doing training around cognitive distortions. And, and I would say it's, a, it's, it's almost antithetical to what many diversity training consultants would bring out in terms of microaggression training, because you know, this is really the approach of saying, let's, let's understand the reality of cognitive distortions. You know, there's, this is settled science. You know, we all understand that the human mind has its limitations and we have all sorts of biases that can come into, into play, whether it's confirmation bias or in-group, out-group bias, et cetera. These are real, right? And they can be helpful. You know, it's just there's so much information that we're processing. If you're trying to decide what to get for lunch, you know, you may just choose an option based on your past experience, right? And that could be a good thing. You know, you don't want to have to process and think and work through the exhaustive set of options that are in front of you every for everything you're dealing with. Right. But when it comes to dealing with people, you know, that can be something that is a negative, you know, because if you make assumptions about somebody based on their accent, based on the color of their skin, based on other factors, then, you know, it's not fair to them. And frankly, it's not fair to yourself either, you know. And so ultimately, this training is helping people to understand that the way that you want to interact with people is by overcoming your initial emotional reaction and trying to trying to look at things from their perspective. So I'll just give a concrete example. You know, microaggression training would say never ask someone where they're from. Uh-huh. Right? Because that's a microaggression. Uh-huh. Our training would say the exact opposite that, you know, actually it can be really healthy to ask people where they're from. You know, that's a great conversation starter. And if you are on the receiving end of that question and you're feeling that you're being attacked or you're feeling negative about it, maybe stop and think about it. And we have, we have a model that we call the sharp model, you know, but the first step is to stop, you know, so rather than reacting to it and, and assuming bad intent, actually think about that and say, well, is there a reason why I'm reacting this way? And listen, it could be that the person, there's a slight chance, is the person trying to be provocative, trying to say, well, you're a foreigner, you're from outside this country. Maybe, you know, but it's a pretty common thing. And the vast majority of people asking that question are well-intentioned. And, you know, so I think that's an example where the approach that we're taking to training would lead you to a different outcome, a different set of behaviors that ultimately lead to a happier, more productive workforce. And the idea is that if you roll out these trainings in large corporations and schools, right, the, to come back to the curriculum example, that these will lead to better outcomes for the individuals involved, but also hopefully for society as a whole, if, according to this 
idea that there are these sort of ideas that are better and worse for dealing these problems. Something occurs to me, though, which is that when you describe the atmosphere at your children's school, it seemed more sort of all-encompassing, almost like the anti-racist approach to race and racial inequality had imbued not just these specific aspects, right, like DEI training specifically related to these issues, but that it had kind of permeated the whole institution and the entire curriculum. Is, is that true? hundred percent. And I think that's the, the the frightening thing about it and what, you know, I mean, I didn't drop everything to volunteer and start a nonprofit organization for nothing and, you know, move my kids to a different school. This was quite frightening to see how quickly this happened. What I will say is there was a memo sent out by the head of school early on, you know, when he was announcing the new you know, efforts to make Riverdale an anti-racist institution. And one of the things he said was quite telling, which is, you know, that Riverdale as a private school has the ability to shift its culture more quickly. I do think that's part of why you're seeing this in private schools in particular, because I think private schools do have that ability. And I think part of the reason why they're not seeing necessarily a drop in admissions or a drop in applications, a drop in revenue is that I think that parents actually have fewer choices than than you realize. And I think that, you know, many parents are not really in the weeds on these issues. They may not like it, but they're not, maybe they don't feel as strongly about it as I do, for example. You know, but in the end, the school can, doesn't have to really meet 100% of the needs of the parents to keep its place as a prestigious New York City private school. And I think there's also, you know, I think part of the reason why many parents sent their kids to these schools is because this is just what you do. If you're, you know, if you want your children to go to a top university and you want, you know, you want to be part of this, you know, this group, then you send your kids to these schools. And so it's it's actually fascinating to me to see how people justify keeping their kids in an environment where even even when they strongly oppose what the schools are teaching. I wanted to ask you briefly about other sort of mechanisms for change and just just your thoughts on the prospects for your goals based on, for example, school board elections or, you know, we had an election in Arizona yesterday for the state supervisor of schools, I think it's called. Also, I believe the Supreme Court is currently weighing a decision on racial preferences in admissions to college. Do you see the chance for maybe those are more top-down changes that could be more in line with your goals? Do you see much prospect for positive change on those fronts, or are you a little more pessimistic? I think that there is opportunity through the judicial process and through the political process. I think education is is really at the core of this. And I think people seeing positive alternatives that resonate with them, right? Because if, if they think that the choice is between, you know, a caricature of what a Republican is and a caricature of what a Democrat is, then... It's 50-50 which way they're going to go, maybe 60-40 or, you know, whatever, depending on what state you're in. But if they can take the politics out of this and just say, which really resonates more with me based on my values, based on on what's important to me and to my family, then I think 
the good ideas win, right? So so part of what we're trying to do is really take the politics right. out of this because right. I think once it gets politicized, I mean, actually, I, I remember, you know, early on when I, you know, when we launched FAIR and I had written the Wall Street Journal op-ed, there was a TV network, I don't know if it was ABC or NBC, had interviewed me. There was a minute clip from their interview with me and I was just basically saying, you know, look, I think that this approach to teaching anti-racism is just going to create a lot more racism. You know, that was my main point. And, you know, it's definitely what I what I believe. They juxtapose that with Donald Trump talking about CRT and, and this other stuff. And so it, it kind of paints this political approach to this. And so a lot of people will look at that and say, well, if Donald Trump's against it, then maybe I'm for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so instead of actually stopping and thinking, you know, what are the pros and cons of this issue? It's okay. Which political tribe is, is right. fighting for this and which is fighting for that? People will decide whether they agree with the ideas based on the party affiliation of the person who's presenting them rather than the merits of the ideas themselves. Exactly. So that's where, so we've been very focused on just being relentlessly nonpartisan in our approach and our messaging. Our board of advisors has people from across the political spectrum. We even have a a Marxist on our board of advisors, you know, so I think that we're, you know, we're trying to really take politics out of it. What I will say is I do think that the Supreme Court, you know, case on this issue, on the affirmative action issue is an important one. And I think that that sort of decision and that sort of policy can only help. And and I say that as somebody who has seen the positive side of affirmative action and how I think you can do affirmative action in a way that is not discriminatory, right? So you can say, here's a group or here's a, you know, an individual who needs some extra help. Let's figure out a way to do that without harming other people, without discriminating against other people, you know, but I, I mean, look, my father as an immigrant to the United States, as somebody with Mexican and Yaqui ancestry, he benefited directly from affirmative action programs in California 50, 60 years ago, right? Affirmative action has been with us for a long time. I think that after a few generations, the question becomes, you know, should we continue this? You know, is this something that we should make permanent that based on something relatively superficial, right? Their skin color should be treated inherently differently, or do we want to think about sunsetting this and, uh, you know, and, and maybe thinking about if, if you're going to try to advantage certain people and, and if your goal is diversity, maybe think about diversity in a more holistic sense and say, hey, actually, maybe it's socioeconomics, maybe being first generation college student, that's a better metric because, you know, that's real diversity. That's actually giving you something interesting. Color is not culture, right? Looking at culture and saying, we really want cultural diversity. And so, you know, how do you achieve that? Well, there's regional diversity, you know, various countries that people come from, but, you know, really getting beneath skin color and thinking about things in a more sophisticated way. I think if the Supreme Court decision encourages that kind of thinking, I think it's a huge positive. What are the um, biggest opportunities and biggest threats or obstacles facing fair right now? What's on the agenda? What's on the horizon? You know, I would say the the biggest opportunities would be to start deploying our education resources. The inspiration for starting fair was K through 12 education. It's very difficult to build a curriculum. And I think it's even more difficult to find 
schools and educators that are going to partner with you to adopt that curriculum. Mm -hmm. But I see that as a huge opportunity. I would say another opportunity is what we're doing in the arts. So there's a fair in the arts program, you know, because I think what what we've seen is that this same reductionist worldview, and it's not just around racial issues. I think it's just a way of taking complex ideas and complex issues and making them very simple, you know, and I think that same um, that same issue has really permeated the arts as well. So I, I think that those are two areas where I'm really excited to see people coming together and focused on addressing those issues and just offering up constructive, positive options that are pro-humanity instead of being anti-anyone. I'm excited about those opportunities. I would say, you know, the biggest threat that I see to FAIR and to the exhausted majority in this country that, you know, that really, I think, strongly believes in and knows that these, this is the right approach and these are the right values is that I think we have a lot of angry people on, on all sides. And I think we have, you know, both social media, but I think also traditional media really highlighting the extremes and maybe participating in this oversimplification of complex issues and ideas. So I think an organization like FAIR is going to always struggle with being painted, you know, and so, you know, I've been called controlled opposition or a Trojan horse by people who are on the right. And I've been called the same thing by people who are on the left. So I think it was Elon Musk who tweeted, you know, it's good to be hated by the right and the left. You know, I don't know that I agree with him on that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, but I think that that's the biggest challenge that I see is just, um, you know, to truly be nonpartisan and stand up for values and refuse to commit to a tribe, I think is, is a difficult place to be in this world. Great. We always ask a question to conclude, which is if you had to recommend to our listeners a book or a film or a podcast or anything really on the topic of civil discourse and debate, what would it be? Probably the coddling of the American mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. I think that that book was published, I want to say, a decade ago. And I think that it foreshadowed a lot of the the issues that we're seeing. So I, I think that if you really want to understand what's happening in America today, I think that is a fantastic book to read. That's great. Thank you very much, Bion. This has been a great conversation. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay at ASU. Thank you so much. 